Good to see you again. President Biden talks with his frenemy, Russia's Vladimir Putin. I'll talk with a former CIA officer who served in Moscow. The Omicron variant is spreading in the U.S., but there's good news on the vaccine front. I'm Paul Brandis. You're listening to West Wing Reports. It's Friday, December 10th. The United States is worried that Russia could invade Ukraine. So worried that President Biden held a video call with Vladimir Putin this week. Now, Putin, of course, is the longtime Russian leader. He's got a very nasty background. His regime has been linked to the murder of political opponents with attacks sometimes occurring in Western countries like Britain. His regime has been linked to the murder of journalists. He has spoken of nuclear war with the West, propped up dictators like Syria's Bashar al-Assad and more, and he has attacked his neighbors before too, Georgia, and in 2014, parts of Ukraine itself. U.S. intelligence officials think Putin could invade Ukraine in force with maybe 175,000 troops in early 2022. President Biden told us about their chat. Meeting with Putin, I was very straightforward. There were no minced words. It was polite, but I made it very clear. If, in fact, he invades Ukraine, there will be severe consequences. Severe consequences. Economic consequences like none he's ever seen or ever have been seen in terms of being imposed. He knows his immediate response was he understood that. And I indicated that I knew he would respond, but beyond that, if in fact we would probably also be required to reinforce our, our presence in NATO countries to reassure particularly those in the Eastern Front. In addition to that, I made it clear that we would provide the defensive capability to the uh, Ukrainians as well. Given Putin's track record, no one in Washington trusts him. That includes longtime CIA officer John Seifer, who served in Moscow and ran the CIA's operations there. On one hand, I want to give President Biden you know, credit because he's had you know, decades of experience working on issues related to Russia and Vladimir Putin. And so I don't think, like we saw with President Trump, that he's naive and sort of washing, walking into something that could be a real a real danger to the United States. But frankly, I would have preferred that we not engage directly at the highest level with Vladimir Putin, because because Putin for the last you know decade or more has essentially been, you know, looking to undercut us at all at all ways. You know, he has a foreign policy of sabotage and subversion. As you know, he's you know interfered in our elections, he's been involved in disinformation and subversion sabotage efforts in the West. You know, he's been supporting violent groups. He's you know, murdered citizens around Europe, potentially put bounties on U.S. soldiers and, you know, a variety of things, cyber attacks and things that we're aware of. What at this point, uh, after all the, the, the bad things you mentioned that he is associated with, uh, what uh, do you think he wants to get out of the Russians? I mean, what, what is it that we need from them? Well, I don't think we need much from the Russians, but I do think that, you know, if I had to guess, I think Biden and the Biden administration they want to take sort of Russia off the, you know, the, the being the main thing that we we focus on. I think he wants to be able to focus on rebuilding our domestic economy and focusing on China as our, you know, main adversary and challenge in the world, and and therefore constantly having to deal with 
you know, problems from Russia, which is essentially, you know, an economy the size of, of Italy. And if we spend all our time working on, you know, pushing back against Russia, we're not accomplishing these other things. So I think what Biden wants to do is, you know, strengthen our relationship with our allies, try to set, you know, sort of clear guidelines with the Russians about what we can do and not do, you know, maybe talk tough to them to make, to make clear, you know, what things we won't put up with. Um, so I think that's what he wants to do. But, you know, I, I worry that, you know, Putin's power is the power of disruption. So I, I don't think talking tough to him or, you know, pushing him in person is, is going to really accomplish much. But uh, again, let's 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 see what comes out of this. I, I wouldn't expect much, frankly. With Putin, of course, it's important to remember that you can take the man out of the KGB, but never the KGB out of the man. Latest now on the so-called Omicron variant. The Centers for Disease Control says cases have now been confirmed in at least 19 states. Meanwhile, a top epidemiologist in Britain estimates that caseloads are doubling every three days or less. And a Japanese study says it's four times more transmissible than the Delta variant. But even though it appears to be spreading rapidly, the CEO of Pfizer, the pharmaceutical giant, says the variant appears to be milder than previous strains, but he warns it could lead to still more mutations in the future. Pfizer also says a third of its COVID-19 vaccine neutralized the Omicron variant in lab tests, all the more reason to get not just your shots, but your booster shot as well. It seems that people are heeding the call. Federal officials said this week that more than 200 million Americans, over 60 percent of the population, have now been fully vaccinated against the virus. Help wanted everywhere. The Labor Department says there were 11 million job openings across the U.S. as of October 31st, 11 million. With all these openings, it's no surprise that layoffs are nearly non-existent. Employers are going the extra mile to hang on to workers, and that means you're likely to get a pretty good raise next year. Diane Swank is chief economist at Grant Thornton in Chicago. Well, what we're seeing is really kind of interesting because we can layer this on with some of the real-time data, which suggests that in November, job postings went up even more to a new record um, from the Indeed Hiring Lab. We have that data, and it really underscores how big the gap is between not only um, the demand for workers soaring, but the supply is still constrained. We did see some good news in terms of people coming back into the labor force in the month of October, most notably mothers coming back in, but they're still lagging tremendously from where they had been pre-pandemic. And mothers with small children, although they had a big improvement in October as schools got more consistent, it still was relative to fathers with small children 
a huge gap. And what we're seeing is the amount of ground we need to make up is still very enormous. We also have to layer on top of this on the supply side, the actual effect that COVID has had on childcare and the ability of people to work because of the loss of grandparents. That's something we've seen some studies on Mexico in that. And you know, people forget that these, these people play key roles in the pandemic, not only because of fear of infection, but because people, we actually lost souls to the pandemic. And in the most recent rounds of fatalities, we lost a lot more young people as well. Between so many COVID deaths, the workforce has also been depleted by two other things. The booming stock and real estate markets have allowed a lot of older people to retire early. Then there is the sharp drop in legal immigration. We lost a lot of immigration since 2016, and the pandemic just accelerated that. It was a 40% decline between 2016 and 2019, mostly legal immigration. And then that the door just, just about slammed shut, of course, during the pandemic itself. So our supply of workers, when you think about it, has been so constrained. We also see that employers, Diane, are really stepping up their efforts to hang on to the workers they have. They simply don't want them to leave because they're simply so hard to replace. Uh, I suppose this translates into things like uh, raises and uh, benefit bonuses and that kind of thing. Well, what kind of raises are people looking at uh, come 2022? Well, there is an expectation, certainly, of most employers to increase wages next year because of inflationary issues, which is unique. We usually we saw that really break down in the 1990s, and we've not seen employers sort of bake into it's not connected to CPI led with the cost of living increase like we saw in the 1970s, which was one of many factors that made today different than the 1970s. But the fact that they're looking at four to five percent raises and budgeting those already. But more importantly, we're seeing um, bonuses being given out that are retention bonuses that if you leave your employer, they have to stay until 2023. And if they leave before that, they have to pay back some very generous bonuses. So there's a lot of issues going on where employers are trying to not only attract workers and not have workers just flip on the next wage hike um, and just go somewhere to job hop to get a higher wage. Right. Uh, it's a great thing that workers are in the driver's seat as they clearly appear to be now. I think the question is, how long can it last? I think inflation is one concern that you mentioned, but uh, how long can it last in your view? You know, that's a great question. And, you know, my own, I have these internal debates in my head and they keep me awake at night, literally, about, you know, how long will we see wages? Will we see wages level up and move to a place where we can sustain wage gains without them being a wage price spiral? But I think it is important to think about, you know, it's hard to imagine the gap between demand and supply being closed anytime soon, and that's good for workers. What I do worry about is the incentives of those companies that are tech savvy, that are really setting the wages at the low end of the, of the scale, also have the most ability to leverage technology to automate away these jobs. All right, going to be an interesting 2022. I think uh, we'll leave it there. Diane Swank, Chief Economist at Grant Thornton in Chicago. Always good to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. It's great to see you. Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. 
The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more. Democracy is on the decline around the world. A report by Freedom House says it has been slipping for 15 years. That decline, by the way, includes an erosion of democracy here in the United States. President Biden held a virtual conference on that topic this week with leaders from some 110 countries. Democracy doesn't happen by accident. We have to renew it with each generation. And this is an urgent matter on all our parts, in my view, because the data we're seeing is largely pointing in the wrong direction. Biden cited that Freedom House report, so I called its president, Michael Abramowitz, who says reversing democracy's decline cannot be done easily. Just to highlight what we reported, it's uh, what we saw as freedom, what we see is freedom declining all over the world in every type of country. So what you highlighted is democracies uh, weakening, uh, but also you've seen a growth of authoritarianism as well. And so countries like Russia and China, which were already pretty repressive, becoming even more repressive. And also countries, uh, many countries, Turkey, uh, Venezuela, uh, and other countries becoming uh, uh, more more repressive as well. So it's uh, it's a phenomenon that's happening all over the world in every country and uh, on every, not in every country, but in in many countries and and in every continent. Uh, what to do about it? It's not going to be as you point out, Paul. It's not going to be turned around right away. Uh, this is a uh, I think a generational issue. Uh, democracy has been eroding for about 15 years. That follows actually a relatively long period of kind of democratization that uh, started in the mid-70s and lasted to well beyond the fall of the Berlin Wall. So we're in a democracy recession, and it's going to take a lot of efforts to, to, get, to get out of it. Uh, I don't think there's a magic bullet here, but I do think that countries like the United States uh, need to pay much more attention to human rights and democracy, and that's what's happening today with the summit. And one thing in particular is that uh, even uh, the United States itself is not immune to this long-term trend uh, either. Tell me about that. That is correct. So in our reports every year, we look at every country in the world, uh, our own country included, and our reports show that over the last roughly 10 years or so, there's been a uh, erosion of the health of U.S. democracy. So we rate countries on a scale of zero to 100. And so 10 years ago, we were at 94, which really put us at the very top ranks of democratic vitality and strength. And we've, we've slipped by 10 or 11 points uh, over the last 10 years. And uh, that's, uh, as you say, that's been a, uh, we're not immune from the global trend. One thing that uh, I tweeted this morning in conjunction with this is uh, a famous quote by Jimmy Carter. He said that the best way to promote democracy abroad is to make sure that uh, it is strong at home. Is it possible, Michael, that other 
countries might look at the United States and say, well, you're not so perfect yourself. Why are you lecturing us on what we need to do when you've got to get your own house in order? Well, I certainly feel you have to do both. Uh, you have to protect democracy abroad, support democracy abroad, but you also have to get your own house in order. That's true of every country, not just the United States. And so I do think that President Carter, uh, the quote you said was, was, was quite correct, that you have to get your own house in order. But I do think we have to be a little bit contextual here in the sense that the United States is still a very vibrant free country. We have strong guarantees of freedom of the press, for example, and, and other core elements of democracy. And so I do think it's uh, important to keep some perspective about this. Uh, and I do think, however, that uh, the United States is the most influential democracy in the world, uh, whether, whether we like it or not. I think people do look to the United States. I think if the United States approaches this in a spirit of humility, of not lecturing, not arrogant, acknowledging our own mistakes, uh, but also saying that we have to all be in this together, I think that could be a positive thing. My thanks to Michael Abramowitz, president of Freedom House here in Washington. In just a minute, I'll open up the West Wing Report archives. But first, let's hear about another Evergreen podcast that I know you'll enjoy. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Now let's open up the West Wing Report's archives and take a look at what made history this week in the past. 1796, John Adams was declared the winner of the presidential election, with Thomas Jefferson becoming VP. The election, by the way, held from November 4th to December 7th, was the first contested presidential election in the U.S., and the only one in which a president and vice president were elected from opposing tickets. 1865, slavery was abolished thanks to the ratification of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. Abraham Lincoln, assassinated eight months earlier, would have been gratified. He had come to the conclusion early in his presidency that a constitutional amendment to abolish slavery was necessary. And 1941. That's Franklin D. Roosevelt, of course, the day after the event that thrust America into World War II. The president went on to say, I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, 
a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. By the way, the vote to declare war on Japan was 82 to nothing in the Senate and 388 to 1 in the House. Montana's Jeanette Rankin, a pacifist and the first woman elected to Congress back in 1916, cast the only vote against the declaration of war, as she also did ahead of World War I. Want more history? Check out my books on Amazon. I'll sign them for you, too. Just shoot me an email, pbrandis at evergreenpodcasts.com. That's P-B-R-A-N-D-U-S, pbrandis at evergreenpodcasts.com. And need a speaker for your event? I do that, too. Current events, economics, analysis, history. I connect the dots and would love to hear from you. By the way, I have an app now to West Wing Reports, available everywhere. Just download it on your phone. There's a button called What's on Your Mind? Just push, talk, and send. And the question I have for you, how do you rate President Biden's job performance so far? He's been in office for nearly a year. How's he doing? Again, just push, talk, and send. I like to end each week with a quote, something you might find thoughtful. This week, it's from Robert Dole, the longtime senator from Kansas, World War II hero, and 1996 nominee for president. He died this week at age 98. Just two weeks ago, he wrote an opinion piece for my paper, USA Today. Here's what he said. This is really good. Dole said, Too many of us have sacrificed too much in defending freedom from foreign adversaries to allow our democracy to crumble under a state of infighting that grows more unacceptable by the day. So true, Americans need to realize that when we tear ourselves apart, it's a great gift for adversaries like Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. They love it when we fight among ourselves. Think about it. That's all for this week. West Wing Reports is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Thanks to C-SPAN and the National Archives for the audio clips. Our producer, sound designer, and engineer, Noah Fouts. Executive producers, Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past.
Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.